mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. And we're here to tell their stories. Here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. For anyone who's good enough of an athlete and who plays long enough to play professionally, going into coaching or broadcasting after your playing days seems almost natural. At the very least, there are a lot of opportunities to continue their involvement in the sport, in their sport in these ways. Uh, for Las Cruces, New Mexico City manager Ifo Pili, a different path led him away from the game. We'll talk more about that later, but now I just want to welcome Ifo Pili to Square Peg Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. Now, I was going to practice, but I'm not going to... I'm not even going to try to butcher it. You do have a longer, your your legal name is, is longer. Why don't you give that for our listeners? Yeah, I do. <clears throat> so it's Fa'ifo Aulilangi Martina Pili. That's 15 letters long. My first name is 15 letters long, yeah. And how long did it take you as a kid to learn how to say your whole name? Boy, I I don't even remember. I just, uh, I remember you had to know how to spell your name in order right. to get to go to kindergarten. And uh, I remember I, I had to shorten it right away. So yeah, it probably took me a little longer. Well, it, took, it would probably take me longer, too. But, you know, before we kind of get into the thick things, we're actually in the thick of football season right now. We're in October. Um, who, do you have an NFL team? I mean, you know, what do you think of how the season's going thus far? You know, I, I kind of follow, you know, relatives and, you know, people that I have connections with. I follow the old teams that I play for. I don't really have a team. I follow my, my college alma mater pretty close because I have nephews that still play. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I look, at the, look at the scores of the Patriots and the Eagles, you know, just to see. You know BYU played here a couple of years ago. I heard about that. It was actually it was a good, I want to say maybe 10 years ago. They travel well. Yeah. They travel. I mean, they had, there was a lot, definitely, more, definitely more blue than there was crimson in the stadium. Oh, wow. But um, football season a little weird for me. I grew up, uh, the house I grew up in is 13.2 miles from the White House. So I grew up as a then Redskins fan, which in the 80s was a good time because they won Super Bowls when I was in third, eighth, and 12th grades. Now, the last 30 that. years have been a little thin. But uh, my dad was born in Pittsburgh, and although he didn't grow up there, his family were all there. So we grew up as, you know, rooting for Pittsburgh teams too. So with having two teams at two different conferences, you know, Steelers have been good for a while, but... It's kind of a lean year. That's a good team, though. Good, so, good franchise. Well, it, is, it is. I like that. I like that division. You know, that's a good. Yeah, I, I was. I was visiting some family. My my in laws. Uh, my my father in law and his wife are in Cleveland, and uh, we were talking about how you know I could probably be a Browns fan if they weren't in the <laughs> in the same division as the Steelers because I like that. It's kind of that Rust Belt, like blue collar Middle America. Same yeah. thing with like the NFC North. Yeah. Not only am I sick of seeing the Packers win, but they're good old school franchises. Chicago, the 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 Lions, the Packers, you know. Yep. I was a Chicago fan growing up. Really? Yeah. Okay, I was kind of wondering who you – I mean, I, I would have figured maybe Denver. But, <laughs> you know, so you're originally – actually, originally from Samoa, you said. Um, but you moved to mainland U.S. at what age? So I was about 15, 15 oh, years wow. old, 14, 15 years old when I moved to live with my brother. My parents still lived in Samoa, so I, I never really considered myself – moved uh you know I, I got you i would go back and forth in the summers um so I, I just came to live with my brother but yeah i'd spend christmas go back for all the holidays now i was okay so that i was a little surprised because i thought you were a little bit younger when you moved here i was going to say what do you remember you're from a mountainous area right so in american samoa i mean it's a it's an, a tiny island that's about sixty-five thousand people on the entire island and about 75 square miles, which Las Cruces is 77 square miles. So give you an idea how, how small of a place it is. But, yeah, that's the island I grew up on. 
What was it like when you moved here? You moved to Orem, Utah, right? I did. Yeah. Culture shock. I mean, how? What was the? What was it like? What were your your impressions coming here? You know, it was different. I mean, definitely different. Different. Definitely a culture shock. Uh, you know, I'm I'm LDS, and so moving to Utah, there is sort of a, a church culture that you kind of, of course, you can relate to, and so you know that that made it a little bit easier. You know, um, my brother lived there, like I was saying at the time, and you know he went to BYU at, uh, on a football scholarship too. So we're familiar already with Utah, but I mean, definitely a culture shock. Climate's different. Climate's a whole lot different, right? He does uh, same temperature all year round. Is it really? I mean, they, I know they get winter. So I was in South Jordan, Utah, uh, back in, I want to say, 2015 for, for a week for some work training. And I was in June. And oh, what yeah. I was really surprised by was how similar it was to here. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, no, was, I was, it thinking, was over 100 degrees and dry. It, it, it is. It is. In Samoa, it was same temperature all year round. I got you. Okay, that's yeah, what you meant. Yeah. And tropical. Tropical, humid. Yeah, which uh, I, I don't know about you. I can do growing up in Washington, D.C., uh, I, I know humidity. I've been here almost 25 years. I can do with that. I'm I'm a desert guy. Now. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm a desert guy. But you know, obviously, you you were able to you know able to acclimate and to get there. Now, one thing I do want to touch on is I think pretty much everybody knows that football and Samoans go hand in hand. Um, you know, it seems like most people know that, and it seems like most people um, recognize fairly easily, easy you know, to recognize that um, Samoans are large people. Genetically sure. and 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 culturally, they're not only genetically large, but I think that there's doesn't seem to be the same um, negative f- feelings towards big people, mm-hmm. overweight people. I mean, you sure. know what I mean. Um, it's it's kind of culturally accepted, and and to a lesser degree, I think um, people also know how how prevalent the LDS Church is, not just in Samoa but Greater Polynesia. Uh, I learned that uh, my parents took us to Hawaii. Uh, summer between eighth and ninth grade. So for me, that would have been the summer of 1988. Okay. And we went to this Polynesian cultural center. Yeah. And what I didn't know until, until we had gone is that we learned that most of the employees there were students at BYU Hawaii. Yeah, my daughter just, did she really? She just went there. She's in the night show dancing. There. Okay. Yeah. Um, but beyond those two things, what's something that the average American or the average person, um, something about Samoan culture, that's a big part of the culture that maybe the average person wouldn't know other than football, big people and, and LDS Church. Yeah, you know, uh, Samoa is really similar to Las Cruces in, in, in a lot of ways. The, the culture, the people, that's what really kind of drew me to, to Las Cruces as well. Just, just, the, just the, the people and the way we, we interact with each other, um, really warm. But, uh, you know, there's a, some things that people really don't know probably. Is, you know, there's a, the culture is really strong still. You know, you go to Hawaii and... You know, it, in order for you to get the culture, you got to go to the Polynesian Culture Center, and you got to, you know, in order to see what it was because like. there's so much tourism. Yeah, but in Samoa, I mean, the culture is live and, and and well. I mean, you have we have a, a a chief system that's a quasi-governmental system that's that's uh, you know going on again live and strong. And um, there's also Western Samoa, but even with the t- they're two different countries, but you know that chief system crosses those lines and those boundaries and so they stayed very traditional very traditional um you know still we still have american influence uh american dollar people speak english in 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 uh, american samoa but very the culture is still strong there yeah well um in any case you you were recruited by a number of schools cal stanford ucla i mean mostly west west coast iowa state i think 
uh, Utah, you you know, you settled in B- on BYU, and and you know maybe you gave the world a bit of a heads up um, on your future plans when you decided to major in political science. Um, you know, majoring in anything and, and staying eligible while playing a Division One sport, especially football, especially a big time program like that, is difficult. I personally can't imagine. I played high school football. Uh, I was as average an athlete as you could be. You know, the idea of playing college football just wasn't wasn't you know a possibility for me. But I can't imagine playing at a major D1 competitive program like that and being serious about school. Um, what was that like, and how did you decide? How did you decide on? Were there any other football players in political science? You know, not not too many, not too many that I I can remember that were in political science. But uh, you know, I I did from a young age have an interest in government. Uh, I didn't know what it was going to be. I didn't know that I was going to end up in city government. But um, that's kind of an interesting, you know, just an interesting story. You know, my father ran for governor in American Samoa when I was, I think I was about 10 years old. And um, he was one of the youngest and still the youngest gubernatorial candidate to ever run. In Samoa, the older you are, the more sacred you are. And you don't you know, to have a young candidate, it's sort of taboo. But he decided to run, and this this is really the, the what changed my whole direction. Again, I was only ten years old, but I remember, um, you know, we had a campaign. There was this campaign committee meeting at night, and you know, everybody left. It was just me and him in the living room, and he says to me, uh, "Hey, you know, I'm not going to win, right?" And uh, that was, like, pretty devastating to me because I, I had my bags packed ready right. to go to the governor's mansion. <laughs> but uh, I said, so what? Why? And he says, uh, I mean, what are you talking about? And he says, uh, yeah, I'm not going to win. And I said, so why are you doing it? And he says, for you. And he says, to let you know that it's not okay to stand on the side and, and watch. And uh, so that at that moment, I realized that I was going to follow that path or the whole plan was for me to come back to Samoa, sort of help him, help him in the battle, and and uh, you know, and then things took a turn. There's right. Other. Well, I mean, is 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 um, I, mean, I would imagine you have siblings or other people in your family, uh, big uh, into academic pursuits. Yeah, you know, they all went to, you know, they're all college graduates. They all have different uh, had different interests. Um, I have. Uh, yeah, all my siblings, you know, actually half of them went to BYU. The other half went to University of Utah. And so, but, you know, academics was pretty pretty high priority for my, my mom and dad. And did you get good support from the football program as far as, you know, I, I don't know how that how it works with scheduling your classes around practice and, and traveling. Obviously, when you're in a big-time program like that, I don't, well, I don't want to make assumptions, but the professors know yeah. where where – the university needs you. Um, but did you have, what was it like balancing all that? Yeah. You, you know, what was interesting is, you know, being the youngest of seven, I had a lot of good examples on my siblings. I had five sisters and my older brother and they planned, you know, my, one of my sisters from the very beginning, before I even started college, uh, she, she came in and mapped out my entire, my entire, uh, you know, next next several years of classes helped me to do that. She was an economics major, and uh, I ended up graduating actually less than three years. And uh, um, and the only reason it took even that long was uh, because during football season I took 
you know, easy classes, so I didn't have to. Right. You know, now, did you go to summer school as well? I did summer. I did. Uh, I just did. I did internships. I tested out of Samoan, which is an option. Your language. T- Samoan language. Tested okay. out of classes that I could. And did you come in with AP credits or anything? You know, and I, I didn't. Okay. I didn't. And, and my my whole thing that I was taught with my siblings, they were like, "Hey, B's and C's earn degrees. You better B's and you, C's you, earn you, degrees. You get your plan. Get your yeah. plan ready. Do what you don't mess around." I didn't take a lot of, you know, fluff classes unless it was during football season where I needed that time. Right. But we mapped it out so early that I actually had most of my master's program paid for with my scholarship by the time I was done at BYU. Now, that's amazing. I would also imagine, you know, we talked a little bit about the uh, the challenges of, of, of going to school and, and being in a degree program that's actually very demanding intellectually while playing a D1 sport at a major program. Now, of course, I'm going to imagine you didn't have the one distraction because of your faith. There wasn't the drinking and the partying and the, you know, do, do you feel like you had a benefit um, in that regard? And not just you, but obviously your other, your teammates. Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, you know, part of it too, I, I took a, a hiatus for a mission for my church. So, right. So I took a two-year hiatus. And so I came back a little bit more mature. I played my freshman year. I redshirted, started my freshman year, and then left for two years, and then came back. And um, you know, more mature. The, when I say not distractions, but other things that took your attention, you know, higher priority was. You know, I had actually started having kids. Uh, you know, I already had a, a two kids by the time I I left BYU. That's another thing I can't imagine <clears throat> uh, having to deal with all of that and your studies. Um, that you ended uh, up in Riverside, California, right? I did. Mission. Yes, I did. Was that what were your? I know you get to list a couple, right? Three to uh choices of where you want to go you know i don't know if we had choices like maybe they maybe they did but uh riverside california was not one of them yeah <laughs> i guess you always you think of you want to go somewhere exotic or whatever sure. and we had a family friend i think her son ended up and they lived in the greater i think they were in provo or in uh log or one of the suburbs there uh and her son ended up in salt lake city Oh yeah. God, I think to myself, how disappointing. Yeah. Right. And why would you need, <laughs> of all places, why would you need people to do missionary work there, yeah. right? But in any case, you know, you you took your two year break, you came back, you graduated, um, and you actually started taking graduate courses in in your senior year, two thousand four, your senior or your fourth year of yeah. eligibility. Right? Yeah, yeah. It was actually my junior year of eligibility. I started. Okay. And so I was able to get because it's a two year program. And I was able to get through with with a semester left before I went to the NFL. Okay, now you um, were not drafted. Did you expect to be? You know, I I did. My my junior year was probably uh, you know I was ranked pretty high as a D tackle. We had a new coach come in my senior year and change the defense. Who and was the coach when you were there? So I played for Lavelle Edwards. I played for Gary Crowley after okay. my mission, and then Bronco Mendenhall. In fact, all three of those coaches were. Uh, Bronco, oh. Bronco Mendenhall from UNM. Okay. He came to BYU as a defensive coordinator. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and he brought the UNM defense, which was a 3-3-5 defense. Um, those, that type of defense is usually not... Not conducive to somebody your size. No, it's not. I mean, unless you're a nose tackle, but otherwise you're an, you're yeah. a, you're an edge rusher. Well, I was a nose tackle, and even, even the nose tackle position, all you are is a decoy. They don't really need a big nose guard. They need somebody that can... They don't need somebody to create pressure because you're getting it. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, well, it, it tended to work out for you. In any case, you signed uh, as an undrafted free agent with Houston, right? With Houston, huh? Okay. And you played with them, or you were on the roster until probably mid, mid-August, the training camp? Yeah, I, I got injured the very first preseason game. 
with uh, we were playing against the Dolphins and uh, tore the ligament, um, you know, ripped my elbow out of the socket and the ligament that holds it together. So I think it's like a, they call it that the Tommy pitchers. John. Was it the yeah, Tommy yeah, John is that, ligament? Is that a pitch? Yeah, some, yeah, like a pitcher's uh, injury. And uh, they paid out my contract. And then next year I went to. Now you ended up in Philly December of that year. Was it yeah. December of that year or the following year? You know, I'm not sure when I ended up with Philly, but I was going to say it, now it makes a little bit more sense, though, if you had the injury, why you basically didn't get signed by anybody else. Now, my question is, you get signed to an eventual Super Bowl champion in mid-December, um, but you're on the practice practice squad, right? Yeah. So you yeah. didn't dress. Do you get a Super Bowl ring? Okay, okay so I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I was not with the New England Patriots when they won the Super Bowl. I th- no, I thought you were with the Eagles. So I was with the Eagles. We lost to the okay, Patriots. Okay, you lost to the Patriots. So I have okay. an NFC Championship ring. Okay, so you uh, do you do get, get all the yeah. you get the bonus. Yeah, yeah, we got. Uh, uh, yeah, anyone when you start going to the playoffs and you get your. Do you travel with the team on yeah. the, uh, when you're on the practice squad? <laughs> yeah. Okay, and you just you just don't dress, right? Uh, yeah. Yep. Okay. Now, you know, another thing I know that uh, NFL players, the NFL has gotten good about mentoring their rookies. And I know you have, there's a rookie symposium. Was that around when you were in the, in the 90s or in the early 2000s, uh, the rookie symposium? You know, I don't know if I remember that. It's, it's hard for me to imagine. I do have to think about this quite a bit. I mean, I can't imagine being 22, 23 years old and having that kind of money and everybody wants a piece of you. Um, you know, if you're a young single guy, you're usually out enjoying the women and enjoying this and that. Of course, you were already married at the time. Did, do you feel like you avoided a lot of the troubles that befall a lot of young professional athletes by already being married with a family and also having a faith that doesn't go along with hanging out in bars and drinking and doing all that stuff? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, when I decided not to go back and play I was actually in my peak. I was in a, 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 I bounced around. Like I said, I got injured, didn't get drafted, bounced around to different teams, and then uh, ended with the Patriots. And that was the time Mangini was uh, was hired as the head coach for the Jets. And um, you know, I was still twenty six years, twenty five, twenty six years old. I was finally getting my. I felt like I was finally getting my, you know, you know, getting my rhythm. And, and Mangini was a new head coach with the Jets. Jets was going to sign me. I was going to I was going to go back up Vince Warfolk with the Patriots, but I felt like this was a chance to finally get a spot, like a starting a starting job and, you know, with a new program. Uh but I decided to decided not to go back. It was sort of a you know, a last minute deal. I get a call from my agent and you know, my wife and I decided not to not You to had already back. been in Eagle Mountain doing an internship, right? Yeah. Okay, tell me about that. Was that a was that strictly an off-season thing, or was that an off-season then waiting to get signed? Or, yeah, no. So, so when I got released, when I got cut by the Patriots. I came back. Remember, I had that last semester left that I needed to, to finish. I decided just to finish it out, and uh, as a part of that that uh, program, they encourage an internship. And just so happens, my off-season condo was in Eagle, a city called Eagle Mountain, and uh, they were they had an internship coming up. It was in the, the local city, and so I, I got the internship. A few months into the internship, uh, the mayor was caught for embezzlement, or he was, um, and where he resigned, city manager was fired. Uh, 
everybody was, you know, they had a new chief of staff that came in. They got fired too, and uh, I was appointed as the acting city city administrator. Really, twenty six years old, and so that was part of the the you know the whole trial by change fire. And yeah, it, definitely trial by fire. I didn't know what I was doing. But they appointed me as the acting city administrator. I was the only one with a, a master's degree. Or now you were you were actually working as an adjunct in the graduate school at BYU. Yeah, I later went back to. It was that during the Eagle Mountain time. Uh, yeah, about and, six years ago. Okay, but, and then you were getting your 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 master's in public administration at the time. No, those were different times. So okay, so when I was getting my master's in public administration, that was, you know, I was a, you know. In college, and then when I, I got came you, back. okay, but you had gone back and you taught in yeah. the pub, in the in the graduate school. Yeah, after I was a city city administrator, after I had you know. Now, being an NFL player with a pol- political science degree and working on a master's of public administration, did the guys give you the business? I mean, were you like the egghead, or did you know kind of make fun of you for being the nerd? Or <laughs> well, you know what's funny is you know, and I definitely didn't consider myself you know smart, right? I mean, I wasn't. I just had a plan, and you stick to it, and you do it, right? I, I wasn't any. I was a gifted academically, but. Um, was interesting is my agent my agent actually uh told me i mean i don't know if he was joking but he says yeah i don't i wouldn't tell people you you got a master's degree and uh i was a d lineman right you know i was in an o lineman where, where brains is uh you know and that's what i was an o lineman i mean yeah. a six foot 250 pound <laughs> as a senior in high school you know but yeah people don't realize the center is the usually the smartest oh, yeah. guy in the field you need the brain cuz he yeah. makes all the calls for everybody else absolutely but you know the quarterback probably has to be the most knowledgeable people don't realize the big oaf yeah offensive linemen are actually the usually the smartest they guys are. in the field they are but in any case you you went to uh you worked uh, again as a as an adjunct at at BYU or BYU you're in Eagle Mountain for how long about 16 years total okay now was that was your idea to be involved in? You, know, you talked a little bit earlier about your dad running for governor of Samoa, and you mentioned something about not knowing whether you're going to go into local government or what. Did you have any idea? Were you thinking nationally, state? Were you thinking more on the city level? It, it was really the the plan was to go back to Samoa. Okay, it was go back to Samoa and join them in in this you know in this this fight to to build our country, and uh, you know Eagle Mountain became a calling for me. It was a city that was, like I said, it was in in, in distress. Basically, you had a, a mayor before that. I think he he uh, actually kidnapped himself or, or lied about kidnapping and so, being kidnapped or something Ouch. like that. And it was just it was just kind of a mess there. And it became a calling. And so I I decided to stay, not go back to the NFL. That city uh, before I left uh, or before I was going to. Uh, to go, I told the mayor, "Let's go get somebody, a real city manager that knows what he's doing." I went and uh, we found one. Ended up hiring what would be my own, my who would be my eventual boss, because uh, we hired him as a city manager, or city administrator, and then he offered me to be the assistant. And then he retired about five years later, and uh, and then I became. And how long did you serve as city manager in Eagle Uh It would have been about, it would have been about ten years, nine, ten. Okay, years, yeah. So it, I, maybe it, it's natural for you to move on after after it actually probably I think you may have even stayed longer than I might expect for it, that somebody in that position at that city that size. Uh, in 2020, though, you you found out about an opening here in Las Cruces. Now, um, how, how am I gonna how am I gonna 
you've already got the job. You've been here for two years, so I don't want any fluff. Yeah. What was it about Las Cruces <clears throat> that you that made you think you wanted to live here? And what did you see about the city of Las Cruces that you thought that you saw as a challenge or something that you could yeah. could work on? Or, the, or, or what your skills you could bring and help improve? Yeah. And, you know, I, I can give you my straightforward, honest uh, you know, answer about this. But, uh, you know, I, I wasn't looking at all. I, I loved Eagle Mountain. And, uh, you know, when I got there, like I said, it became a calling for me. Uh, it was a it was a city, you know, median household income was in the high 40s, low 50s. And within 10 years, that median household income uh, went to 77,000. And we focused on economic development. That's where we went out to, you know, we landed Facebook, Google, and Tyson. And um, there were a lot of goals that I had for the city, setting it up. And and every year, I mean, there were we were just checking them off the list. And to be honest, it just came a time where I was just, you know, kind of accomplished everything I, I wanted to accomplish for the city. I knew we had still had always have stuff to do, but there's this I don't know if it was an email or something that came that had this job opening, and the only the only reason I even clicked on it was because my city clerk came to me two years previous and said that she found the place she wanted to retire, and she says Las Cruces, and she says it's beautiful, and I just remember that in the back of my mind, and so I I clicked on this. I was at home. Um, it was in the evening. I it, was, it wasn't even a full application, maybe like a questionnaire, and then you upload your resume. Two hours later, I get a call from the headhunter, and uh, she says she wants to interview me the next day, the next morning over the phone. Wow. And so I'm, I'm scared. I'm nervous because I'm like— You hadn't done your research yet. Yeah, and I'm like, you know, I, I told her I'm just—you know, I don't know if I really want to do this. I was just messing around. I was just curious about it and, um, you know, had the interview— and, uh, you know, the interview was pretty, of course, pretty last because I didn't really care. <laughs> um, she would ask me, you know, the typical question. She asked me if, uh, you know, hey, Aoife, what's your, what are your weaknesses? I said, ah, Catherine, I have no weaknesses, zero. And, you know, just, you know, the interview was just kind of relaxed and funny. And she calls back later and says, hey, I'm going to put you in the top, the top 10 or something to, to submit to the council. And I got really scared at that point. And so I called the mayor, my mayor and counselors. I was like, listen, um, I'm just messing around. Um, you know, they were thinking, like, well, then why don't you just pull out? And honestly, I, I couldn't. I couldn't pull out. I just felt there was just felt like there was something that drawing me. Well, she calls me back. She comes back uh, and she says, hey, you're in the top five. And it looks like, you know, I'm going to be honest, it looks like they're, they're interested and you're one of the ones they're really interested in. So if you're messing around, it's the time to pull out. And that was the time I, I was, you know, I, I would have, but I couldn't shake it. And so during COVID, without letting nobody even knew, um, had my wife packed my wife and my kids in the car, and we drove down here. We drove uh, 12 hours and spent less than 24 hours in Las Cruces and drove back. Now, I would imagine you've been to New Mexico because BYU were probably in the Mountain West at that time. You probably played in Albuquerque. We played in Albuquerque almost every year, even uh, even when we were in the Mount, uh, even before that. Okay. When we were in the WAC. But, but you've uh, never been this far south. Never been far south, never even explored anywhere else besides the stadium, you know. But, yeah, we drove down here, and there, and there wasn't even, um, like, anything that really stood out, but there was just a feeling that we couldn't shake, and... 
I came back, you know, my wife and I, and of course we go through our, you know, with our faith, we go through our fasting and prayer, and, you know, you also go through your your ritual of, of making decisions. And, uh, Andrew, this is something that just drew me here. And the more I researched the city, so so going to, to some of the challenges, I, I noticed there was a 24% poverty. I noticed the median household income, and that, that – that actually didn't scare me. That drew me. That drew me in because I, I, I saw what we were able to do with the city, city of Eagle Mountain, and I felt like there's certain principles that if we apply, we can do the same. Now, I wanted to ask you, um, and, and I, of course, I knew this from doing the research. And you talked about what, how you were able to positively, positively impact uh, median household income and economic development uh, uh, in Eagle Mountain. Was that something uh, in your undergraduate or graduate? Did you? Did you have a minor in economics, or did you have a particular interest in that area of, of government or public administration? You know, there really wasn't any education on that. It was it was learning on the job. We just made a decision, uh, you know, about like I said, it would be now twelve years ago that we wanted to we wanted to to elevate our city, and so I learned. I, I actually flew around the country, um, dedicated you know, my career to, to economic development, met with Fortune 100 companies, met with, you know, different site selectors, learned from some of the cities that were doing it correctly, um, like flew out to their industrial parks. And, uh, and so it was, it was really learning because we were passionate about getting it, getting it going. Now, it's funny, you mentioned there was something about Las Cruces. Uh, I, you know, I had a similar experience. I've talked about it on this podcast before. When I was a senior in college in the spring of 1998, my dad and I came out here to visit um, because I was thinking about moving out here. And, you know, I had been to the Southwest. My mother grew up in El Paso, but we'd never been up here. And we were actually, we were on our way to Silver City and we stopped in Las Cruces and we got off. I don't know if you know this, but the downtown where, where, where Main Street goes through the downtown where the farmer's market is, for a number of years, that was actually blocked off. And water streets and, and, and church were made kind of a circle. I heard that, yeah. And so we had gotten to that point right where Eichert's Furniture is, at Loman or Amador, whichever one it is, because it splits there. And we stopped, and I looked to my right, I looked east, and I saw the mountains. And I saw how blue the sky was, and I said to my dad, I could live here. And a year later, right. I moved here, so I get it. Now, moving to a new city, one of, one of the, the benefits of you being a member of the LDS Church is that you know that as soon as you move to a new city, you've got family there. Absolutely. There's, I mean, literally a welcoming committee and yeah. people who are going to think there are three wards here. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure that that probably made things easier. I, I would imagine that you probably set foot in the church before you set foot in City Hall. Absolutely. No question. Absolutely. Okay. In fact, we, when we came down during COVID, you know, they, were, they weren't having the meetings. But the first thing I did was look for the church, sat in the parking lot, right? Uh, with my family, just so we know where it was. and and But yeah, absolutely. You know, there was something, and I, I don't remember, honestly, whether it was Las Cruces or El Paso. And for listeners who aren't aware, El Paso and Las Cruces are kind of like sis, sister cities. Uh, kind of like for somebody like me who grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, I would say like B- Baltimore and Washington. Um, you know, 30, 35 miles you know, away from each other. We should, we, There are two TV markets there. We share a TV market. But it might have been El Paso who not that long ago went to a city manager system of, of local government. And I remember there being some discussion uh, about uh, the difference between a, a city where the mayor acts more as an executive the way a governor or a president would, as opposed to a, a system where there is a, there's a mayor, obviously, but there's also a city, city manager. And my understanding of local government, embarrassed to say, is kind of limited. Growing up where I did... 
And I became a TV news junkie when I was about five or six years old. So I watched the news, the local and national news. And I got to know a lot about national news and the, you know, the Congress and national government. I spent uh, about 20 plus years ago, I spent three years working for the town of Mesilla and actually started to learn a little bit because I knew they had their meetings on Monday nights and I would read about them in the paper. Um, I, again, I embarrassed to say I know a lot less than I should about Las Cruces city government and how it works. So we, we have a family friend actually who's a city councilor and talk to her every now and again. Explain to me and for the listeners, what is the main difference between those two types of city government where you, the mayor system and then the, the city manager system? Yeah. And you, you have variations of, of this, right? It's more like a spectrum, but you have the strong mayor form of government where, like you said, the, the mayor is the chief executive. And then you have the council manager form of government where, uh, the city manager acts as that executive, and uh, really, it's it's a. I mean, that that's the gist of it. And um, in our in city of Las Cruces, the mayor is a part of the council technically, and you know the mayor chairs that council. He chairs the meetings, uh, but he has one vote, and you know, and so each each of the councilors have all have equal authority in that policy making. Uh, you know that policy making process the difference with with the mayor is the mayor doesn't represent just one district like like our council each one of our counselors do he represents the whole city uh but also you know as, as a member of that that council he's part of the council and then you know in the city of las cruces a lot of people don't know i mean the, the mayor and city council have one employee that's it <laughs> and that one employee is me and, uh, so who's making the final decision? If, if a final word needs to be made on something, is it you or is it the mayor, Mr. Miyagashima? So anything that has to do with operations, right, anything that has to do with the day-to-day operations of the city, personnel, procurement, those types of things, um, you know, that's that's vested with the, the city manager. Uh, when it comes to policy, that's the authority of the council. Okay. Now, you we talked about how economic development was a big part of uh, what you did in Eagle Mountain, that was the reason you were brought here to Las Cruces. Now, you made some pretty, I wouldn't say drastic, but you made some changes to the way things were done. Now, you moved um, you moved housing and neighborhood services from the community development to the economic development. Um, tell me about that process, the thinking going into that, and what your results have been, because I know you've gotten some very high marks. Yeah, you you know, one thing I didn't want to do when I when I came here was was act like, uh, everything I learned was going to be everything that was needed here. I knew this is a different place, total, total different city, different needs, different approach. And so I really wanted to just, just learn the lay of the land. And, and, uh, before I came in and, and try to apply the same things we did in Eagle mountain. Uh, and I realized pretty quick that I couldn't, I couldn't do the same things that we did in Eagle mountain because it was a different you know, there's a lot of things that were different there that uh, prohibited that. But <clears throat> one of the things I, I realized um, is that economic development for me in Eagle Mountain, you know, was all about bringing prosperity. It was all about, you know, getting the, the, the biggest companies to come, getting just this d- dynamic, vibrant economy and, and uh, keeping up with the pace and even, you know, beating out all the other cities in Utah. Over here, I, f- I felt like, you know, we have a, there's a rich culture here. You know, Eagle Mountain is a, was a brand new city, relative, only 26 years old. 
Uh, and in fact, it started with only 250 people 26 years ago, and now it's 60,000. And I managed through most of that growth. Wow. And uh, so it was a different dynamic. You know, the reason why the median household income was like that, it wasn't just, it wasn't because people were, were in poverty. It was because they were young, broke college students that just graduated, married, you know, but very educated. You had a, like a 90% of the adult population had some type of post-secondary education. And wow. So, so it was a different, it was a different dynamic. Um, so something I was going to ask you before I actually did my research and found out that economics was your, you know, economic development was kind of the cornerstone of of your philosophy, if you will. I'm holding up air quotes. Um, and, and my question is, um, I gave you my, kind of my background of where my understanding, my best understanding of government is. Um, they say, and they've always said that the best change happens on the local level. That's where you make the change. And I think we've seen, um, and we don't want to, one of the two things I, I, I don't do on the show is we don't, we don't do politics. Of course, it's, you can't talk about government without kind of brushing up against that. But one of the things that I, I noticed is uh, school boards. There's, there's push to, to influence life uh, by people running for school boards, which, of course, are local. My, my, what I was wondering, again, before I found out that you had this academic an- or this economic angle was how do you address some of the things – uh, you know, New Mexico is a high poverty state and, and the things that go along with high poverty, a lot of the social pathologies and the high school dropout rate and the unwed mothers and the teen pr- and drugs and uh, crime and all those things. I, I, what I was thinking is, how do you address that on a city level? But yeah. I guess that's do you feel like economic de- development is the first step? Because those other things are more social kind of issues. Yeah, yeah my, my, my definition of economic development, first of all, has changed since I've been here. And. To me, the reason why I moved that that section over is because I, I believe economic development for, for Las Cruces has to be three-pronged, has to be a three-pronged approach. We were very heavy on business recruitment and retention, um, mainly recruitment back where I came from, brand new city, wanting to go out and just get the world. Over here, um, business recruitment and retention will always be a high priority for me. I think that's, that's the lifeblood, obviously, of, of economic development. But the other two that I've added and I've, I've really learned more about since I've been here is workforce development and housing, affordable housing. One of the mistakes I made back in Eagle Mountain is you could get a home in Eagle Mountain for less than 100000 You could actually, in fact, that's why I lived in Eagle Mountain because I, I had a cheap off. I told my agent I need a cheap off-season home that I can come to, a little condo. But, I mean, you can get a single-family detached resident home for you know hundred hundred thousand or less now the entry level home is about four hundred thousand dollars in eagle mountain you just opened up pandora's box because and i I don't want to let you go without asking you about this you know where i grew up my my parents uh, bought the house that i grew up in in 1975 they sold it in 2015 or 2016 for literally 10 times what they paid for it um and one of the big things that i'm learning is in places like new mexico las cruces new mexico I know Eastern Washington is like this, Idaho, yeah. people, wealthy people, are not, not people who aren't wealthy necessarily for where they live, but because of the, the home prices there are selling and moving. And some people are investing. I think most of the houses on my street um, are owned by California investors. They drive up, they drive up prices. Is, is there something you can do? Or is there something as, as a city manager on that level of government that you can do to, or that anybody can do to, to stem that tide? Or is that uh, something above your, is that a, gov- a state level or? You know, the things that I think we could do is we can 
we can provide these programs that that incentivize affordable housing. I mean, there's a there's a lot of a lot of programs out there. And one thing I realized when I came to to Las Cruces is that we have a housing section. We actually have a housing section that's been pounding the pavement for years. It's funny. I, I actually called a meeting. Um, just sent it out to anybody in the city, anybody who wants to, to be a part of affordable housing. Let's have this meeting, uh, meeting of the minds with, with uh, I mean, no matter what position they were in, and have that meeting scheduled with people volunteering. And then somebody came to me and says, hey, you know, we have a housing uh, a housing section in, in our city, right? And I didn't. And so, you know, I went to our, our housing you know manager, and I'm like, sorry, I, I, didn't, I didn't know. And so, you know, I, I got schooled and learned. and uh, But there's all kinds of programs. I mean, we have a, a general obligation bond that's going to go to the ballot here in November. That's uh, about $6 million is what, what the question is going to be. The, the ask is about $6 million towards affordable housing. Now, do you work with builders? Because I know there, I mean, there are a lot of people building homes here. Do you, do you work directly with builders, or do you get input from them on things like that? Yeah, absolutely. They participate in your... Absolutely. And for, for me, I, I think that's where it's going to be solved. I, I think the private sector, you have to incentivize the private sector. The city actually going in, or even, even the nonprofit organizations that actually do this, the city going in and owning uh, you know, housing, to me, is not the way to go. It's, the government should not be owning. The only time you do that is when you don't have any other option. But for me, if you have private sector, if you have a, a building community, that's able to, and you're able to incentivize them to provide affordable housing or nonprofit organizations that do that. To me, that's the way. That's the way you got to do it. We have to. Govern, I believe government has to stay out of this uh, as much as we can, and only insert when we when we need to. You know, something uh, that was kind of on my mind, and and very unorthodox for somebody who works in my field. I've always been very pro legalization of cannabis. Of course, April first of this year. No joke. April first of twenty. It was on April Fool's Day. Uh, the state of New Mexico, you know, legalized the sale of recreational cannabis in the state. And we have, uh, heaven knows how many dispensaries are in town here, you would probably know. Um, I know the state collects a tax. Does the city get, does it? Does the city have a a, a tax on? There, there is a portion that comes to the city. There, There is, in fact, we're, we've projected. Uh, you read my mind. <laughs> yeah, we've projected, a, you know, about a million dollars to, for this year, but I, I think we're going to get more. I think that's it's going to come in. We just didn't know how many applications. You, you said I should know. I don't know because that there are applications coming in and going through approval process. What are, per, what percentage of your tax receipts would that represent? Do you think? You know, not not very much. I mean, we have over a hundred million dollars in uh, okay, you know, gross receipts tax revenue. So you said about a million. You think? Yeah. Well, one percent. I mean, that one percent goes a long way. Does that? Is there any? Um, my understanding is that some, I think Colorado was one of the first states to pass legalized cannabis for recreational use, and they they had it. It was supposed to be earmarked for things like education. Does the city have? Are there any rules that the city has made for itself about not, how it spends? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. So the city council is going to take a look at that. Uh, right now, that we we have a separate, you know, separate account for you know separate account number and or. Call it GL, separate line line item for receiving that that, so that when we did we do earmark it, we can have those funds separated. Okay, well, ladies and gentlemen, before we wrap up, because we we are coming up short on time, um, Aggie football. Yeah. <laughs> 
Aggie football. Well, <clears throat> let me I'll tell you a quick story about my Aggie football experience. So when I first moved to, to Cruces, I actually worked for the university. And my first special event that I worked uh, they, in 1999, I played New Mexico Highlands. And, of course, they blew them out. It's a D2 school. But I had no frame of reference. Well, the following week, they went to Arizona State. And they beat Arizona State 35-7. to 7. And I thought to myself, wow, they got a football program here. Yeah. And uh, Aggies did what the Aggies do, and they lost the next five or six games in a row. The first five years or so I lived here in Las Cruces, I actually paid very close attention. I, I knew what I needed to know about the team, and, uh, and that gets very frustrating. Um, but, of course, uh, 2019, we went to the Arizona Bowl, and Las Cruces showed up big time to Tucson. Showed up big time. That, I never expected that. Do you, do you get out to the games? I do. Okay. Yeah, and I, I'm following pretty close. Okay. I, I really like Coach Gill. I, I think I have some high hopes. I know we only, we only got one win this uh, so far this year, but I, I've seen some good things. I think his staff is, is good. I, I'm really hopeful. I actually went with a couple of friends and our kids uh, to the Hawaii game. Okay, yeah. Which is a hell of a good game to go to, right? <laughs> yeah. I, another really quick, funny Aggie football story. So Thursday night, there was, they played an ESPN2 game. Um, gosh, I want to say 2003 or 2004. And at that, that year, they were doing quarterback by committee. There was a guy named Buck Pierce who, now is the, who played in the CFL. And I just watched the CFL game. He's an offensive coordinator for somebody. And then um, Paul Dombrowski. Pretty sure it was Buck Pierce. I was working security at the game, uh, as we do you know, off-duty. And uh, I was standing right about the goal line, you know, on the sideline. He rolled right, launched a pass. I could see he was going to be aware of the receiver's head. Hit me right in the gut. I caught it. I have an unofficial NCAA reception. <laughs> And I actually right told my mom, I've got a VHS tape somewhere, but I told my mom to record the game because, uh, you know, who knows if I could show up on ESPN2, and I've got that somewhere. Right on. But um, one more thing before we go. You wife challenged you to a midlife crisis goal. <laughs> Tell me about that. Yeah, no, I that, that was actually, uh, you know, my own midlife crisis goal. My wife wanted me to, to do cardio uh, as a midlife crisis goal. Uh, but yeah, I decided. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to start getting back in shape. You know, I got after I got uh, done playing. I, you know, just did the office job thing and, and started getting out of shape. And so, wanted to go back. Uh, my wife said, "Hey, you need to you need to start working out." So I started working out. But I, I have never in my entire life just worked out just to for health. It was always been for sports, right? And so I had to have some type of competition. And so I started powerlifting. And uh, I've always had a good bench press, but I didn't focus much in, in college. I, I could bench 400 pounds as a, as a 16-year-old, um, but didn't make much improvement in, in college. Maybe 460 was the most. And so really it was only like five years ago, you know, my goal was to get to 600-pound max. I got to about 560, and uh, I was actually getting really unhealthy. It wasn't It wasn't anything that would help my health and – uh, but again, I started, even when I came back, I started lifting again to get back up there. Got about 520, 540. I was lifting with one of our, our uh, police officers who, you know, we mentioned earlier, Felipe, right. who bench over 500 pounds. He, he could, if you didn't know, but you think he might, you might think he was Samoan too. I mean, yeah. he's, he's got the look oh, and the yeah. build. He's, a, yeah. he's built like you, a smaller version, but uh, did you ever <laughs> make strong. that goal? So 560 is where I stopped. I okay. tore my pec last December. And so I decided, you know, to hang good. Hang it up for now. Yeah, I'm, I've been lifting pretty much six days a week for the last, you know, four months. Back to, back at it again. 
Well, that's good. We don't have time to talk about it here, but when we when we get done with this, I'm going to talk to you about some things I've been doing. I, I switched from traditional gym exercises that I did for uh, the time I was 14 until two and a half years ago when I was, what, 46. Um, and I, I tried some new things and actually very func- some functional strength training. I've lost no size and 30 years of shoulder pain went away in, in about three months. Wow, I, so, I need to hear that. We'll yeah. talk about that, and I'll, I'll show you some stuff. Ethel Peely uh, is the city manager for the city of Las Cruces. He's been here about two years, gets really high marks, and uh, I had a really good time talking to you today. Thank you for being my guest. Likewise. Likewise. Oh, Thank you. One more thing. Do you listen? What podcast do you listen to? Do you listen to? You know, I, I, uh, I go and I click topics. Gotcha. But I'm going to be listening to this this uh, podcast from here on out. The Square Peg Podcast <laughs> has a positive review from Las Cruces City Manager Ifo Peely. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to this episode. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence. We will see you next week with a brand new episode of the Square Peg Podcast. Proudly produced by LasCrucesToday.com and Bravo Mike Communications.